Chapter 18 of My Southern Home, or The South and Its People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. My Southern Home, or The South and Its People, by William Wells Brown. Chapter 18. Immediately after the rebellion ceased, the freedmen throughout the South, desiring, no doubt, to be fully satisfied that they were actually free and their own masters, and could go where they pleased, left their homes in the country, and took up their abode in the cities and towns. This, as a matter of course, threw them out of business, and large numbers could be seen idly lolling about the steps of the courthouse, town hall, or other county buildings or listlessly wandering through the streets. That they were able to do this seemed to them positive evidence that they were really free. It was not long, however, before they began to discover that they could not live without work, and that the only labor that they understood was in the country on the plantations. Consequently, they returned to the farms, and in many instances to their former masters. Yet the old love for visiting the cities and towns remained, and they became habituated to leaving their work on Saturdays and going to the place nearest to them. This caused Saturday to be called Nigger Day in most of the southern states. On these occasions, they sell their cotton or other produce, do their trading, generally having two jugs, one for the molasses, the other for the whiskey, as indispensable to the visit. The storekeepers get ready on Saturday morning putting their brightest and most gaudy-colored goods in the windows or on the front of their counters. Jew shops put their hawkers at their doors, and the drinking saloons, billiard saloons, and other places of entertainment kept for their especial accommodation, either by men of their own race or by whites, are all got ready for an extra run. Being on a visit to the state of Alabama for a while, I had a fair opportunity of seeing the colored people in that section under various circumstances. It was in the autumn, and I was at Huntsville. The principal business houses of the city are situated upon a square which surrounds the courthouse, and at an early hour in the morning this is filled with colored people of all classes and shades. On Saturdays there are often fully two thousand of them in the streets at one time. At noon the throng was greatest, and up to that time fresh wagon-loads of men, women, and children were continually arriving. They came not only in wagons, but on horses and mules and on foot. Their dress and general appearance were very dissimilar. Some were dressed in a queer-looking garment made of pieces of old army blankets. A few were apparelled in faded military overcoats, which were liberally supplied with patches of other material. The women, unlike their husbands and other male relations, were dressed in finery of every conceivable fashion. All of them were decked out with many-colored ribbons. They wore pinchbeck jewelry in large quantities. A few of the young girls displayed some little taste in the arrangement of their dress, and some of them wore expensive clothes. These, however, were city niggers, and found but little favor in the eyes of the country girls. 
As the farmers arrived, they hitched their tumble-down wagons and bony mules near the courthouse, and then proceeded to dispose of the cotton and other products which they had brought to town. While the men are selling their effects, the women go about from store to store looking at the many gaudy articles of wearing apparel, which cunning shopkeepers have spread out to tempt their fancy. As soon as the crop is disposed of, and a negro farmer has money in his pocket, his first act is to pay the merchant from whom he obtained his supplies during the year. They are improvident and ignorant sometimes, but it must be said, to their credit, that as a class they always pay their debts, the moment they are in a position to do so. The country would not be so destitute if a larger number of white men followed their example in this respect. When they have settled up all their accounts and arranged for future bills, they go and bunt up their wives, who are generally on the lookout. They then proceed to a dining saloon, call for an expensive meal, always finishing with pies, puddings, or preserves, and often with all three. When they have satisfied their appetites, they go first to the dry goods stores. Here, as in other shops, they are met by obsequious white men, who conduct them at once to a back or side room with which most of the stores are supplied. At first I could not fathom the mystery of this ceremony. After diligent inquiry, however, I discovered that since the war, unprincipled storekeepers, some of them northern men, have established the custom of giving the country negroes who come to buy as much whiskey as they wish to drink. This is done in the back rooms I have mentioned, and when the unfortunate black men and women are deprived of half their wits by the vile stuff which is served out to them, they are induced to purchase all sorts of useless and expensive goods. In their soberest moments, average-colored women have a passion for bright-colored dresses which amounts almost to madness, and on such occasions as I have mentioned, they never stop buying until their money is exhausted. Their husbands have little or no control over them, and are obliged, whether they will or not, to see most of their hard earnings squandered upon an unserviceable jacket or flimsy bonnet or many-colored shawl. I saw one black woman spend upward of thirty dollars on millinery goods. As she received her bundle from the cringing clerk, she said with a laugh, I clare to the load I's done gone busted my old man sure. Never mind, said the clerk. He can work for more. To be show, answered the woman, and then flounced out of the store. The men are but little better than the women in their extravagance. I saw a man on the square who had bargained for a mule, which he very much needed, and which he had been intending to purchase as soon as he sold his cotton. He agreed to pay fifty-seven dollars for the animal, and felt in his pocket for the money, but could find only sixteen dollars. Satisfying himself that he had no more, he said, "'Well, well, if dis ain't the most stravagant nigger I ever see. I sold two bales of cotton this bressed day, and got one hundred and twenty-two dollars, and now I's only got dis.' Here he gave a loud laugh and said, "'Old mule!' I want you mighty bad, but I'll have to let you slide this time. While the large dealers were selling their products and emptying their wagons, 
those with vegetables and fruits were vending them in different sections of the city. A man with a large basket upon his head came along through one of the principal streets, shouting, Hello there, Nacella. I's got fresh eggs, just from the hen. Lay em this morning for the occasion. Here they is, big hen's eggs, cheap. Now's your time. These eggs is fresh and good, and will make fuss-rate eggnog. Now's your time for eggnog with new eggs in it, all laid this morning. Here he set down his basket as if to rest his head. Seeing a colored servant at one of the windows, he called out, Here, sister, here's the fresh eggs. Here they is, big eggs from the big hen, much as she could do to lay em. Now's your time. Don't be foolish and miss this chance. Just then, a man with a wagon load of stuff came along, and his voice completely shut out the man with the fresh eggs. Here, cried he. Here's your nice winter squash, taters, Irish taters, sweet taters, Carolina taters. Big house there, big house. Look out the window. Here's your nice cabbages, taters, sweet taters, squash. Now's your time to get them cheap. Tomorrow's Christmas, and you'll want them show. The man with the basket of eggs on his head, and who had been silenced by the overpowering voice of the tater man, called out to the other, Now, I reckon you better go in another street. I's been toting these eggs all day, and I don't get in nobody's way. I want to know, is this your street? asked the tater man. No, nah, but I thank the Lord I's got some manners about me. But then I couldn't spec no more from you, for I knowed you afore the war. You was one of them cheap niggers. Clodhopper, never taste a bit of white bread till after the war, and then didn't know twas bread. Well then, if you make so much fuss about the street, I'll go out of it. It's nothing but a second-handed street know-how, said the tater man and drove off, crying, "'Taters! Sweet taters! Irish taters and squash!' Passing into a street where the colored people are largely represented, I met another head peddler. This man had a tub on his head, and with a musical voice was singing, "'Here's your chitlins, fresh and sweet, who'll join the union?' Young hogs, chitlins, hard to beat. Who'll join the union? Methodist chitlins, just been biled. Who'll join the union? Right fresh chitlins, they ain't spiled. Who'll join the union? Baptist chitlins, by the pound. Who'll join the union? As nice chitlins as ever was found. Who'll join the union? Here's your chitlins, out a good fat hog, just as sweet chitlins as ever you see. These chitlins will make your mouth water just to look at them. Come and see them. At this juncture, the man took the tub from his head, set it down, to answer a woman who had challenged his right to call them Baptist chitlins. Does you mean to say that them is Baptist chitlins? Yes, 'em. 
I means to say that they is real Baptist chitlins, and nothing else. Did they come out of a Baptist hog? inquired the woman. Yes'm. Dem chitlins come out of a Baptist hog. How does you make that out? Well, you see, that hog was raised by Mr. Robeson, a hard-shell Baptist. The corn that the hog was fatted on was also raised by Baptists. He was killed and dressed by James Boone, and you all know that he's as big a Baptist as ever lived. Well, said the woman, as if perfectly satisfied, let me have two pounds. By the time the man had finished his explanation and weighed out her lot, he was completely surrounded with women and men, nearly all of whom had their dishes to get the choice morsel in. Nah, said a rather solid-looking man. Nah, I want some of the Methodist chitlins that you's been talking about. It is, sir. What? asked the purchaser. You take em all out the same tub? Yes, quickly replied the vendor. Can you tell em by looking at em? inquired the chubby man. Yes, sir. How does you tell em? Well, sir, the Baptist chitlins has been more in the water, you see, and they's a little whiter. But how does I know that they is Methodists? Well, sir, that hog was raised by Uncle Jake Bemis, one of the most shouting Methodists in the Zion Connection. Well, you see, sir, the hog pen was right close to the house, and that hog was so knowing that when Uncle Jake went to prayers, if that hog was squealing, he'd stop. Why, sir, you could hardly get a grunt out of that hog till Uncle Jake was done his prayers. Now, sir, if that don't make him a Methodist hog, what will? Weigh me out four pounds, sir. Here's your fresh chitlins, Baptist chitlins, Methodist chitlins, all good and sweet. And in an hour's time, the peddler, with his empty tub upon his head, was making his way out of the street, singing, Methodist chitlins, Baptist chitlins, who'll join the union? Hearing the colored cotton growers were to have a meeting that night, a few miles from the city, and being invited to attend, I embraced the opportunity. Some thirty persons were assembled, and as I entered the room I heard them chanting, Sing your praises, bless the lamb, getting plenty money, cotton's going up, deed it am, people, ain't it funny? Chorus rise shine give god the glory repeat glory don't you think it's gonna rain maybe was a little maybe one old hurricane spilin in the kittle chorus craps done fail in egypt land say so in the papers maybe little sleight of hand mong the speculators chorus Put no faith in solemn views. Keep your pot a-smokin'. Stand up squash in your own shoes. Keep the devil chokin'. Chorus. Fetch me round that tater juice. Stop that sassy grinnin'. Turn that stopper clean a-loose. 
keep your eye a skinning chorus here's good luck to egypt land hope she ain't a failin hates to see my fellow man straddle up the palin chorus the church filled up the meeting was well conducted and measures taken to protect cotton raisers showing that these people newly made free and uneducated were looking to their interests paying a flying visit to tennessee i halted at columbia the capital of maury county at regerford creek five miles distant from columbia lives joe budge a man with one hundred children never having met one with such a family i resolved to make a call on the gentleman and satisfy my own curiosity this distinguished individual is seventy-one years old large frame of unadulterated blood and spent his life in slavery up to the close of the war how many children have you mr budge i asked one hundred sir was the quick response are they all living no sir how many wives had you thirteen sir had you more than one wife living at any time oh yes sir nearly all of them were living when the war broke out how was this did the law allow you to have more than one wife at a time well you see boss i wasn't under the law i was under massa were you married to all of your wives by a minister no sir only five by the preacher how did you marry the others over the broomstick and under the blanket how was that performed well you see sir they all shimbles in the quarters and a man takes hold of one end of the broom and a woman takes hold of the other end and they holds up the broom and a man and the woman that's going to get married jumps over and then slips under a blanket they put out the light and all goes out and leaves them there how near together were your wives master had four plantations and they lived bout on them them that weren't sold did your master sell some of your wives oh yes sir when they got too old to bear children you see master raised slaves for the market and my stock were called mighty good cause i was very strong and could do a heap of work were your children sold away from you yes sir i see three of them sold one day for two thousand dollars apiece you see they were men grown up did you select your wives don't know what you mean by that word did you pick out the women that you wanted oh no sir i had nothing to say about that massa allers get em and pick out strong hearty women that's the reason that the planters wanted to get my chillin cause they were so healthy did you never feel that it was wrong to get married in such a light manner now sir cause you see i toted the witness with me
What do you mean by that? Why, sir, I had religion, and that made me feel that all were right. What was the witness that you spoke of? The change of heart, sir, is the witness that I totes in my bosom. And when a man's got that, he fears nothing, not even the devil himself. Then you know that you've got the witness. Yes, sir, I totes it right here. And at this point, Mr. Budge put his hand on his heart and looked up to heaven. I presume your master made no profession of religion. Oh, yes, sir. You bet he had religion. He was the fustest man in the church, and he was called mighty powerful in prayer. Do any of your wives live near you now, except the one that you're living with? Yes, sir. There's five in this county, but they's all married now to another man. Have you many grandchildren? Yes, sir. With my lations and all together, they numbers about four hundred, near as I can get at it. Do you know of any other men that have got as many children as you? No, sir. They calls me the boss daddy in this part of the state. Having satisfied my curiosity, I bade Mr. Budge good day. End of chapter 18 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.